Good morning, K2. So I am still that Catherine. I said up there I'm Catherine Rohr, but I'm now Catherine Hoke because I was remarried six months ago and my husband's name is Charles Hoke, like Coke, and I'm still in the same one. I just chopped off 14 inches of hair. So anyway, let's get right into it. Defy, that's the name of our organization. One of the definitions of the word defy is to challenge or dare a person to something that is deemed impossible. And our mission at Defy is to transform the lives of business leaders and people with criminal histories through their collaboration along the entrepreneurial journey. Okay, great. So why does this matter to Dave enough to bring us here to K2, or why would it matter to you? Because I think it matters to God. Scripture is filled with former bad boys and girls who were redeemed and who became leaders of the church. So let's hear from one of them here. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul wrote, I think... I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me in a service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among who I am foremost of all. So if you've studied the life of Paul, you'll see that in, before he really became Paul, he was like the worst gang leader ever. Um, but in this scripture here, he said, he considered me faithful. The restoration is awesome. But scripture has a lot more of these heroes. Um, and there are a lot of people who didn't become biblical heroes, but there are quite a few biblical heroes who have serious rap sheets. Murder is probably one of the most crazy categories or scariest categories to people in society, right? Murder. Um, and so is violent crime. And so Paul said he was a violent aggressor. And then on the murder category here, we have David, Paul, and Moses. It's funny because how often in the church do we hear men saying, I want to be just like David, a man after God's own heart. <laughs> do you realize what we're saying here? Yes, we want to be like the reformed, restored David. But before that, it wasn't so shiny. And women, there's some women in scripture as well, like Rahab, you know, the hooker with a heart. She made it into the Jesus Hall of Fame, the Jesus Hall of Faith, right, for being restored even though she had her sins. And then we have Jesus and John the Baptist. They were locked up too. Now, they were falsely accused. They were innocent. But what happens in today's society, there are some people who get locked up who are innocent, but even after they've served their time, they get out, say they want to do the right thing. They're permanently known as ex-con, ex-offender. You pick your nice label there, but that is their permanent identity. And when they put their resume together and they want to go get a job, it's put in the trash pile. So my question is, why, if Jesus so unconditionally loved criminals, why today do we treat modern day with people with criminal histories like they're 21st century lepers. In effect, it's like saying, well, David, Paul, and Moses, who have written so much of scripture, like those old school murderers, cool. We want to be like them, follow what they say, but today's murderers keep them locked up and as far away from me as possible. So there, I'm just saying that maybe there's something wrong with that. So another question for you. What would it be like if you were known for the worst thing that you've ever done? Really think about it. You don't have to share out loud. What would it be like? What is that label for you? Is it ex-cheater, adulterer? I don't know. We're all ex-somethings in the kingdom, right? We've all been redeemed and restored. 
But whatever that sin was, imagine if that was the first thing you had to put at the top of a job application. So I'll tell you a little bit about my story and how I landed myself in this work. I used to work in venture capital in Silicon Valley and then private equity in New York City. I had a fancy job. I was making $200,000 a year at the age of 26. At 25, though, I gave my life to Christ. And I'm a thoughtful, methodical person. And when I did, made that decision, it meant a whole lot to me. It was my heart, but it was also my time. It was my checkbook as I started to tithe and then more than tithe, like just live a life of generosity. And I started to ask God how he could work through me so that I could live out a life of love and service. I was really serious about what it meant to be a Christ follower. So I used to pray this little prayer. I started praying it every single day, and it's really short and really dangerous. And it goes something like this. Bring it on God. Bring it on God. I was challenging him, like, what are you going to do with this? You know, and I have all these business connections. So what can we do here? I never in a million years thought that I would end up doing prison work. Um, because when I was age 12, a good friend of mine was brutally murdered by these two 16-year-old boys. And so I thought those two 16-year-olds, they could rot, die, go to hell. I didn't care. Anyone in prison to me was the total scum of the earth. So bring it on God, but not really into this thing. Well, I have a friend over for dinner who worked in my industry, and she said, hey, why don't you come join me on this little prison visit out in Texas with Chuck Colson of Prison Fellowship? And my first thought, no, thank you. You know, other thing, I was open to other things. But as she talked about these stories of personal redemption that she saw behind prison walls, not everyone behind walls wants to change, but many of them do. As she talked about it, I could hear my, feel my heart buzzing. And I've been praying for something like this. So God would reveal it. So I said yes, even though I didn't, it was pretty inconvenient to fly from New York to Texas. So I did. And when I went there, I went in with a hard, judgmental heart, like looking at bad people is how I looked at it back then. And I came out of it crying, realizing the hardness of my heart and how I, as this new grace-loving, believing Christian, I felt ashamed over that ugliness of pointing at other people. And then in speaking with these guys about what landed them in prison in the first place, I was really inspired because see, I didn't know anything about the drug world or about gang leadership. And I realized, I don't know if you know this, many gangs are actually run by boards of directors. They have bylaws. I mean, they're for real business organizations or illegal ones. But the guys who run this understand a whole lot about management, about distribution channels and sales, um, about making a good profit. What they didn't understand very well is their risk management strategies because they all got busted. But I wondered what would happen if they were equipped to go legit with their skills. And I saw how, yeah, these are society's outcasts, but they're maybe America's biggest underdogs. Long story short, I was 27 at the time, and I could feel this calling. I left my fancy job in New York City. I put in every last dollar. I had 50000 in my bank account. I poured it out. It wasn't enough. I cashed out my 401k. I went all in. No plan B. I went all in on my calling and built out what became the Prison Entrepreneurship Program. And it still exists today. And in five years, under my leadership, we equipped 600 men in the Texas prison system, not exactly the lightweights, because we were seeking out criminal leaders who had done a lot of time, 80% of them, just like Paul, had committed violent crime. And these men went on to achieve 
the most awesome results of any prison rehabilitation program in the country. They generate 13 million a year in income and paid 4 million in taxes. This is significant because most of the people who come out of prison, what happens, they get on welfare, they can't find a job. So they're not on welfare and they're actually paying taxes. We had a 98% employment rate within four weeks of release from prison. They started 60 companies, not fancy ones, like simple cash flow businesses, a catering company, a painting company, a landscaping company, and our recidivism rate was less than 5%. Nationally, it's like 50 to 70%, depending on what stat you look at. So I was really, really proud of what we were able to accomplish in these five years. But what really got me up in the morning, what really got me going, was knowing their personal stories of transformation and their families. We had a family love and reunification program where we would work with their kids. And at their graduation, this program is like designed to be really, really tough. We wanted their families to come to the prison to celebrate. Some of the families had hard hearts. But we said, no, he's transforming. Like, come and witness this. And they said, we don't have the gas money to get to the prison. And we said, we'll take care of you. We would treat them like royalty for the weekend. And we would bring their kids there. And I got this approved by the warden to buy teddy bears for the dads. And the dads would decorate the little teddy bear t-shirts. And it with a message that said, my daddy loves me. And they would put the t-shirts on the teddy bears. And at our graduations, we'd have 30 to 50 kids out in the audience. Some had never met their father before. They certainly had not received a good gift from their father. And we said, if your daddy's up on stage right now, he has that good gift for you. Go run up into his arms. And they did. And it was like, boom, that moment of connection right there where they would hug. That's like, that kept me living and going through all the hardness of, of this work. And dad would say, I am sorry that I did this. I will never, ever, ever leave you again. A message that these children so much, they so badly need to hear. I have a real heart for fatherhood. Next slide. Because 70% of children with an incarcerated parent follow in their parents' footsteps. So there are many problems in America. But the work that we do is not that sweet and cuddly, except for the teddy bears. Um, but a lot of people think, let me run an after-school program, which is great. But in, from my experience, I've never seen an after-school program that is more powerful than a father who is there for his son or daughter modeling the right values and teaching them up in those ways. So that's what I stand for. Yes, we use entrepreneurship as a tool to restore families, to restore entire communities. And I've always had a vision of creating a national solution. So this work is going in Texas. I now live in New York City. I'm running Defy, an entirely different organization. I'd love to tell you that I just moved to New York to build this out and skip over what happened in the middle. But I fell on my own face in the process. And it's something that I share every time. Um, so I was married through this whole experience. I was married for nine years as I built out PEP. And I poured myself so into PEP that I was a really lousy wife. I missed so many opportunities to be a wife. And at the age of 31, I found myself a divorced woman, something I never expected and something that I considered to be very, very shameful for me. I had been speaking on all these church stages and talking about what it would be like if you were known for the worst thing that you've done. And I couldn't believe that I was like I was divorced. Um, in, in the wake of my divorce, instead of reaching out for love and accountability that I needed from friends, I instead, in my shame, I hid. And in my hiding, I made some of the worst decisions and costliest decisions of my life. I ended up having relationships with people who had been released from prison. It wasn't illegal, 
but it was certainly against all of my values. It's the worst leadership thing ever. The one thing that I did well was that when I was confronted and asked about it, I was honest and I was fully forthcoming about what I did. Although I was honest, it still led to my resignation. At the time, we had 7,500 supporters and volunteers, like bigwig executives and MBAs. I wrote a letter to all 7,500 of them sharing and confessing what I had done and announcing my resignation. And I was so ashamed when the news decided to pick this up and talk about me. And it went out in the news globally. And as I saw what people were blogging about me, making even more stuff up, even though I had been so forthcoming, I just wanted to kill myself. I felt like God had given me this calling. I felt like I worked myself out of my calling. I screwed everything up. I didn't have anything left. I wanted to walk around with dark sunglasses. I don't know if any of you can relate to being in a place of shame where you just you don't feel like you have a vision to keep going. I didn't know where to go. I was just disgusted with me. And one reason that K2 is so near and dear to my heart is because right after hitting the send button to the 7,500 people, the very first phone call I received was from one of your members here at K2. And his name is Bill Townsend. And he and his wife just said, we love you. This is what the gospel is for. Come out to Salt Lake, stay with us for a little while and we will love you back to life. It's so often in the church that we see a brother or sister fall, and then we kick them while they're down. And it's too rare that we come alongside people and pick them back up. But I was the beneficiary of the stuff that I've been preaching for a while, with people coming alongside me and giving me a second chance to lead. But I was too tired to lead right then, so I took a year off. I went to more therapy than I care to admit. Uh, I went to this pastor blow-up camp. I guess some, there are some pastors who screw up their lives, too. Um, and I had time to dig deep. And I moved back to New York City because I was lifeless and not energetic. And I'm normally a very energetic wrestler type. And so I moved back there. And um, as soon as I did, I got an offer to go back into venture capital. But the minute that I got that, I felt like just a complete sellout. Because I know why God has put me on Earth. But I didn't have the courage right then to come out and do this again. But people said to me, people like Bill and Andrea said, you know how to do this. You have this gift. You don't need to go do it again. And the only moments that I had joy in that period of deep depression was when I was able to talk about the real transformation in these families that got back together. So uh, three years ago, very cautiously, nervously, like with the lowest self-esteem ever, I announced I was launching Defy Ventures. And I said, basically, this is my 2.0 version of what I created at PEP. I don't know how you're going to receive me when I share about my scandal and my story. I was so nervous. You know, people would write me off. What am I doing here? Um, and I created this. I had time to evaluate some best practices on what would work the best and, and decided that where the, the attention really needs to be is for people once they're released. Because when people are released, they have next to nothing. So we partner with parole and probation to look for people who need a second chance or sometimes a first legitimate chance. And we make sure that they take ownership of their lives. We reconcile their past and help them to move forward. And the way that we do that is half through entrepreneurship and business skills. And so have you guys seen the show Shark Tank? Okay, so it's like that, where these investors come in and grill them and roast them on their ideas. We help them write business plans. 
Um, and then we actually finance and incubate their companies with startup grants and with access to microloans. And if any of you in here are business professionals like lawyers or marketing people, accountants, we give them pro bono services. We get behind their businesses so that their legal ventures win. We're transforming that hustle so that they can make it legally. And then alongside that, just business, in my opinion, is not enough. Holistic life transformation. So we have our family love services. We do a lot of spiritual formation, character development, parenthood training. We were just teaching the five love languages the other day, breaking down the walls and the barriers to make sure that people are really truly healing and growing so that they can become the awesome fathers, leaders, and go back into their communities and be the light that those communities really need. So that's what we do at Defy, and now in just two years, I launched it three years ago, spent the first year actually building the infrastructure so that we can scale nationally, and in two years, here's what we've done. We have served 115 entrepreneurs in training, is what we call them, not ex-cons, EITs. 12 of them are women, now we get to serve women too. These people have already launched 70 companies. It is amazing. We've incubated them, we've, we've uh, financed them, and these 70 companies have generated 35 new employment opportunities. So our guys become entrepreneurs and then they hire other people who are hard to employ in their communities. It is awesome. Our employment rate is 87%. Our graduates have reported an income increase since graduation of 94%. Our recidivism rate is way less than 5%. And we have recruited 1,800 executives who fly in from Salt Lake City even, for real, and even globally to participate in this solution. We are just deeply honored by the results and by what we're doing. So I want to show you a couple of pictures of the work that uh, we've done. We have a one-on-one -on -one executive mentoring program. So this is from, from one of our mentoring nights. Um, this next one here, these are some of the winners of our most recent business plan competition, raising their hands as champions. Um, and uh, leveraging my athletic background here, we think outside the box at Defy. And this is Tim Draper, one of the most famous venture capitalists from Silicon Valley. He was a team captain, and he took on the CEO of the New York Stock Exchange in a competitive game of basketball where they were playing against Defy guys at Madison Square Garden. And uh, if you want to see who we recruited as our coaches, that's, that's uh, John Starks. And we had him and Larry Johnson, Nick's legends, coaching our guys for just good, holistic fun that also helped us to raise some money so that we can scale nationally. This next one, this is Marcus. He's in our current team of entrepreneurs. Marcus came to Defy smoking weed every day, unemployed. Today he's employed. He's totally clean. He's a great dad to his three-year-old daughter. Marcus has had to overcome a stuttering problem, like a really big one that has held him back in life. This past week, as he prepares for our business plan competition, he put himself in a stuttering boot camp for one week so that he can grow. I mean, when I say holistic, I really mean it. Uh, this next picture is of Lionel at one of our family love services, our, our parties, where we celebrate together the great accomplishments of these dads. And then you'll see them just throwing up their, their caps because they are so proud on that day of graduation. And this is, this, is why, this is why I keep going and I can't stop. So I'm really passionate about the work that I do, but I've brought some friends with me and I, I want to introduce them to you, but they're going to come up here. They're actually in the program right now and they're going to share with you their pass. It's really hard to come up here in front of all of you fancy looking people and share about the worst things that they've done as well. So I told them I'd only allow them to come up if you hoop and holler and make them feel really welcome. So will you? Excellent.
All right. Um, let's get the hard part out of the way first. Introduce yourself, your age, and uh, summary of your rap sheet, please. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lassia Palmer. I'm 21, 21 years old. <laughs> <laughs> Fourth service that we've done here. <laughs> I'm 45 years old. I served a 20, total of 21 years in prison for robbery. Thank you. My name is Carl Sparte. I'm 28 years old. I served a total of five years in prison, and I was running a drug service, a kingpin. Okay. And no one is born saying, when I grow up one day, I want to become a criminal. So can you talk about the life circumstances, the childhood circumstances that led to your arrest? I experienced my first, um, my first experience with a gun, a handgun, was at 11 years old. I experienced my first arrest at 12. I know it sounds probably nothing, but y'all grew up playing cowboys and Indians, most likely. I grew up playing cops and robbers, and nobody wanted to be the cops. And that's the reality. Um, as a result of that, I wind up leading a group of individuals, 17 individuals who were leaders in their own, in their own right. And I went across the country committing diamond heists from San Francisco, New York City, Miami, and Philadelphia. Um, so, so I, I ran this uh, drug service. I had about 15 members, making over two, $2 million a year. Talk um, about your childhood first, like how you were raised oh, yeah. by your family. I forgot. So uh, I grew up under the poverty line. Um, my mom raised four of us. Uh, we all slept in one bed. Uh, my, my whole neighborhood was drug infested in the 80s, 90s. And uh, like I used to go to the store and see people in my building shooting up drugs, have drug lines go selling in my building. And then, um, everybody asked me, when, what do I want to be when I grow up? And the first thing that I, I, would, I always told everybody was that I wanted to be rich. And the first avenue that I received was through the world of drugs. And that led me to a $2 million drug operation at the age of 18. Okay. And at, at Defy, we partner with them in their personal transformation. But there's only one savior, and we're not it. They have to choose to want to transform themselves so that we can come alongside them. Talk about the catalyst for that personal transformation. Um, for me. Throughout my incarceration, 75% of my incarceration, I was still committing crime. My transformation came when the realization that I was a terrible father. My son got arrested and he came to prison. That's the worst experience I ever had in my life and it's still affecting me to this day as you see. Um, it was at that point that I had to transform my life and turn it around. Um, I seen that I had an effect on people that people followed behind me, but my thing was I'm in prison and I'm not following the rules. How am I gonna follow the rules in, when I go home if I'm not following them in prison? It was at that point that I had to really turn my life around. Thank you, Koss. So I, I, I call it my Cinderella story. Uh, right before I was gonna be released, um, 
I got into altercation, altercation with a correctional officer and I was sent to the box the whole solitary confinement. And uh, here's where I had a letter that I written out to my wife, 10 page letter, had no stamps to send it out with. And the first, one of the first letters I received while I was in the box was uh, by my sister. And she told me to read Psalm 91. Uh, Psalm 91 said, uh, he who dwells in the shelter of, most high, of the most high will rest in the shadow of the, of the almighty. Which meant to me was, if I believe in him, he's gonna be in my journey through my whole life. And uh, once I opened up the Bible, a stamp fell out of, my, out of my Bible. Once I started reading Psalm 91, and that was like a miracle and a, and a life transformation that I received and a, and a mission calling. Uh, not only was I transformed mentally, but physically I lost uh, 70 pounds. And when I was in prison, I, I was told by a doctor in the medical unit that I had high cholesterol, blood pressure through the roof. And if I didn't implement uh, exercise daily, that I was gonna die in five years. And that meant I was gonna die in prison. So this, this woke me up and, and just gave me the step forward to do everything I can to change. These men have been out of prison for less than a year now and have been in Defy and have started their own companies just recently here. So, uh, now that we're through the hard stuff, I would like an elevator pitch from you on your business. No more than 20 seconds, 20 seconds, go. Oh, well, I created Legal Tech which is a legal resource firm for government workers and private sector workers that challenge workplace decisions from sexual harassment, unlawful termination, um, your analysis testing. It's called usgrievance.com. Okay, and he got those skills because he became a paralegal in prison where he learned the law from the inside out. Okay, and Koss, your, your, your pitch? So after losing all this weight, I created prison-style workouts. I call it Koss Athletics. That's the name of the company. I lost 70 pounds in six months, and after losing all this weight, I decided to help people in prison to lose weight. And when I came home, I created a, a fitness boot camp. Uh, I already subscribed 21 members in the last two weeks since my incorporation, uh, thanks to the help with Defy. I feel extremely proud of you guys. Final question. Talk about the impact of your life on, and your families on, yeah. uh, of Defy. Defy has done a lot for me. It gave me a structure that I never had in my life. It also allowed me to become reliable to my family. My family relies on me now for the first time in my life. And it's amazing. And um, I'm very thankful for that. Can I say something with you? Real quick. All right. Um, this is the first time I'm going to say this. Is the acronym that I created when I was in the box is about change. And the acronym means calculated healing always necessitates genuine effort. And it's very hard, but I've done it and defies continually helping me do that. And I appreciate that. Thank you. Good job. Toss, impact of Defy in your life? So the, the Defy has made a major impact in my life. Um, since I came home, well, when I was in prison, my, my son, I have a six-year-old son, and the, 
one thing that used to break my heart all the time was him having to come to the visiting room and ask me why I'm not coming home and to pull him, pull my arms and say, come home, daddy. And uh, it was just a, a heartbreaking feeling that I couldn't take my son home with me. Um, so when I came home, the uh, five, we, we actually had our last business plan competition that I came in second place, but I will definitely win this one. Um, <laughs> And he was just so proud of me and just coming, you know, wrapping his arms around my neck was just amazing. And there's no words that could explain what, what, it, feel, what it felt like. Uh, it's just priceless. Thank you. Please give it up for these guys for sharing their awesome stories. So as I mentioned, we deal with the highest failure rate industry in America, and some people would say this is the problem. It is a problem, but I would say this is the opportunity. A little known fact is that 92 million Americans have criminal histories, 92 million. Nearly one third of US adults, they usually keep this as quiet as they can. They, you don't go advertising it like these guys just did because of the shame that comes with this work. 70% end up rearrested, and in New York City, it costs taxpayers $167,000 to lock up one person for one year. I'm sure the cost is less here in Salt Lake City, but it's still crazy. To send someone to Harvard for four years is $155,000, okay? And this is a totally ignored problem just in America in general. So what are we doing about it, and why do you care here in Salt Lake? Well, like I said in the beginning, go big or go home. We're doing something that we want to bring here to Salt Lake but it depends on how you respond here at K2. I wanna come here. Do you want us here? Do you feel your heart buzzing? Do you care about these people? If you do, what we're doing is we're gonna hire two people here locally to lead events, to recruit executives and business professionals. We're also creating an online training solution. We're transferring a lot of our actual training into an online format so that people all over the world will be able to see this and gain opportunities. But online training isn't enough. Stuff has to happen in person, mentoring, competitions, love. That's what transforms people. So we would love for you to engage, and you can learn more about that. We have a booth outside. My big picture calling doesn't even have the word prison in it. And I'll tell you, when I became a believer, what I became convicted of, that was my calling. And it's a scripture out of 1 Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in this present world... And a lot of times when people hear that, you're like, oh, that good. Phew, that's not me. I'm not rich. I would tell you, having traveled to other parts of this world, that anyone who is sitting in this room right now, that we are rich, okay? Not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. When I poured out my savings account and my 401k in a leap of faith to make this work happen, yeah, I was nervous, but I got life indeed. I get life every day because of the way that I give and serve. And so I'm here to ask you and to challenge you, will you do this with me? Because this isn't my work. This is our work as a kingdom. 
So a lot of times when we come and speak and you hear these testimonies of these awesome guys, people say, I'm so inspired. And that so right there has like four or five O's after it. Like, I'm so inspired. And I'm like, awesome. Inspired to what? And, and people are like, huh? Okay, I'm very direct. Um, do we come here to church to be entertained? To hear a message and sit here? Or do we come here to be inspired to action? To love better, to serve better, to become more Christ-like in our actions? I hope that that's what we're here for. But, but sometimes people are like, that's awesome work, good for you. And I'm like, okay, so and they're like, well, this isn't for me. You know, I do something else. I said that too with my first invitation to prison. So let me share with you something that's in scripture, a response. James, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, as most of our guys are when they come to Defy, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. I will pray for you. Really talk to the hand, though. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. You know, we hear that so often in Christians say, I'll pray for you, peace, you know, and out. So I want more than that. And one of the reasons that I was so excited to come here to K2 is because Dave told me that here he's building a culture of response. So if you feel your heart buzzing from what you've heard today, we want to invite you to respond meaningfully. I'm, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you feel your heart buzzing after this. All right, decent. Okay, so here's what you can do. You can pray, but we want pray plus, if you will. Consider connecting us with other business people or leaders or associations that will help us to make a difference in the work that we do. Consider volunteering. If you are a business person, um, you can actually come and serve as a judge in New York City. If you're not a business person, come out to New York. Come to Central Park Picnic that we have every summer with your kids. Come play with Koss and, and his kids. Um, and then in addition to that, you can also, if you want to partner with us financially, because nonprofits like ours are not run off of just prayer or hot air, it's run off of meaningful resources and finances that people provide, we would be so grateful if you would consider providing a scholarship for one of our entrepreneurs like Koss or Lassia. Next slide, please. They range from $500 a month, where you'll pick up one scholarship card like this, and Koss will know that he was picked by you, that you'll become his sponsor. $500 a month covers not just his training and the family services, but also the startup grant for his business. So if you've always wanted to become a venture capitalist, there you have it. They go down to $100 a month as well. Every bit helps, and we would be grateful for your support. If you do, you'll end up with a cool Defy t-shirt here that says transform your hustle on the back. Okay, you can fund our family love services, next, um, where you provide, yeah, I know, I had to pick that face, sorry, um, specifically to help out there. And if you are interested, next slide. Um, I came here I came here with some good traveling companions. I have SLC Abby. That's because she used to be a member here at K2. We recruited her away. She now lives in New York City and works for us. She's uh, at one of the tables in the back. And that hunk right there, that's my husband, Charles. So he's six foot seven. You can't miss him. So uh, if you talk to either of them, they'll get you signed up. If you just get on our mailing list, you'll even know what to pray for and how to engage. So guys, I get my second chance and I am honored and just I feel really welcomed here by the way that you treated our guys. Thank you for listening and receiving us at K2. Yeah.